Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. We have Connie Sheeran, who started a nonprofit that seeks to change the lives of one child at a time. Welcome, Connie. Good afternoon. Jack, I've set up nonprofits for clients of you. Yeah, only one or two. Most of mine were the 501c4 type, which, um, as you know, deals with politics, lobbying, advocacy work, and as some people might say, the place where dark money comes from. Right. Not as altruistic as Partners for Care, uh, which is Connie's organization. Why don't you uh, tell me that story again of how you came across Connie and her, and her organization? It was some years back, I'm guessing 2015, 2016, and I can't remember how, but I got an invitation to a, attend an event at the Roosevelt Coffee Shop here in Columbus on East Long Street. And the two speakers were Connie and a young woman named Kelsey Langsdale. Connie was explaining how after raising a family where she's at that point in her life where I guess she could put her feet up, she had taken a few trips to Kenya and thought, oh my goodness, there's some work here to be done. And then the other part of the presentation was Kelsey Langsdale, who I think worked for Grief Manufacturing, that gigundous packaging organization in Delaware. And grief was solving a big problem for people in the developing world, which is how do you get clean water from the clean water source to the very humble house where most of these, and houses, probably an overstatement, where most people live because most of them were carrying water and old jerry cans that probably once held gasoline or pesticides. So Kelsey was raising money for Greif to manufacture these uh, water bags that were comfortable to carry. And of course, Connie's organization was gonna be a big beneficiary of those bags. So I met these two women and I thought, wow. I called them each an army of one because they were just so resolute in pursuing their goals. I I was really, I really admired them both. Connie Jack was um, singing your praises to me and um, when we were talking about seeing if you would come on our show. And Jack, you always seem to be able to get those guests that have us questioning our contribution to humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I always wish we could do more. Um, but one question I had uh, for Jack, uh, Connie, about uh, what he told me about you and your organization is, why Kenya? Uh, what, what is it about uh, Kenya that, that is where your organization does most of its good work? Well, I think the answer to that question I read recently in, in, in a parable, well, it talked about it's on my path. I was just asked to go to Kenya. And so it isn't that there was any strategic plan. I was asked to go, and that's where I ended up. And I was asked to go several times. And Kenya is a good place to work because it is there in East Africa. It's a peaceful nation. 
Um, a lot of people in Africa feel as Kenya goes, so will the rest of Africa. It's a democracy. And, um, and so it's, it's a good place to be able to help to uh, make some changes. I have a uh, client who's become a wonderful friend of mine from Kenya. He's a psychologist here in um, Columbus, and he talks about the abject poverty there and the need for all sorts of services. And he has a clinic there where he goes back uh, for several months out of the year and um, and helps in his particular field. So um, just from his observations, uh, it's a real need uh, there that you're filling. Oh, definitely. There, there's a great need. Um, being a nurse and caring um, passionately about public health, it's also a, a good place to be able to help solve uh, serious public health problems, whether it be waterborne diseases or malaria or, you know, the, the things that are serious public health issues that um, when you can solve those problems, you impact on, on a great number of people. Connie, when I hear stories like yours, I always think, what if somebody said, hey, Jack, go to Kenya and start rendering services there along the lines that Connie has? And my first thought is, what? I, I wouldn't know how to get started. That it's, It just seems overwhelming to me. So give us a couple bite-sized pieces about how you got things rolling in a foreign country. Well, I think that, first of all, Jack, it's, it's not that I had a, a perfect plan at all. Um, I'm a very optimistic person. I believe that um, I have a philosophy that when I'm asked to do something, I say yes and figure things out later. I don't try to figure everything out first because I think sometimes we believe if I knew then what I knew now, I might not have gone this way, but I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now. And so I just went with a lot of faith and, and just made some, some, some overall philosophies in the beginning. You know, I had been around the world. I'd been to different places and I'd seen the poverty. And, and over the years, I've done my share of donating to charities to different nonprofits. And it just seems like nothing changed. It seems like materially poor people are still materially poor. Public health is still a huge problem. Waterborne diseases, malaria... You know, they're, they're huge killers of children under five. And so it just seems frustrating to me that things hadn't changed. So I made some decisions that we would work pro bono here in the U.S., that we would not use any donor money to support anybody here in the U.S. So uh, people who donate to Partners for Care, we can say that the money does go to Kenya to help. Um, and then second, I just knew that I wanted to work with local people and didn't want to be the, the person that came in with the um, solution. I'd have thought that in the beginning, but I quickly learned that that way to do it. So um, that helped a lot, just being able to work with the people on the ground and work with local people. I remember when we were talking, you referred to how other organizations sometimes go into a developing country and for lack of a better expression, sort of tell these people what they need or just give them what the visiting people think is needed. Your approach is far different, isn't it? Well, I quickly learned, I started that way, Jack, thinking that, you know, I could 
uh, bring solutions to problems. And I quickly, very quickly learned that, you know, that they didn't need me to bring them solutions. They needed me to help them implement solutions that they already knew. And so that, that quickly changed, you know, so um, they know the solutions to the problems that they have. They just need somebody to, um, to come alongside them or even sometimes, as I say, behind them and support them in their efforts to be able to solve their own problems. When I looked through your website, Connie, I um, saw the um, pictures of your team. Uh, are all of those people local uh, there in Kenya or are some of them uh, here in the United States too? No, the team that you'll see on the website are everybody in Kenya. Our team is in Kenya. We have a very small infrastructure here. There's just a couple of us. And then we have a great board um, that helps us to be able to raise funds. Um, But no, all of the team, as we refer to, are Kenyans. How much money does it take to run your organization? We raise around $700,000 a year um, in order to support um, the ministry there. Um, we work from all the way to Marsabit, all the way to Kalithi. We have 30 staff on the ground. We have four centers. We run a medical clinic. We have we partner a lot. We have 32 partner uh, computer schools, 27 partner sewing schools. So we learned early on that partnering gives us greater breadth and greater opportunity. I always tell people that Partners for Care is like an hourglass. We're very small in the center, but we have wonderful partners here in the U.S. We partner with Mobility Worldwide, who gives us the mobility carts to be able to lift people from the ground and put them in a hand cart so that they can um, be mobile. We partner with FODAC, Friends of Disabled Adults and Children, out of Atlanta. That gives us adaptive equipment that we take to Kenya. We partner with MedShare there in Atlanta that gives us medical supplies. We partner with people who give us computers. Um, Mobility Worldwide gives us the sewing machines. And so we have really great partners in the U.S. And then we're just small. We funnel these things through. And then in Kenya, we work with like 100 partners in order to distribute our mobility carts. Because, again, we want to work with the people closest to the ground. So we partner with Mount Kenya University, with ZTech University, um, with people there in Kenya. So it's truly, you know, when we started and we called it Partners for Care, we really never realized the extent that the partner word would become an overarching uh, philosophy about how that we work. How did the Kenya government uh, treat you then? Were you well received? Was that something that um, created some barriers or, or hurdles for the organization? No, we believe just like Dr. Farmer taught us, you know, uh, who Dr. Farmer, of course, is who worked in Haiti. And, you know, I used to listen to Dr. Farmer and he explained that, you know, at the end of the day, the government is the one who's still going to be there. And so when you can support the government hospitals, you can support the government clinics, you can support the government schools. You know, the government forms a lot of what happens um, in a developing nation. So we partner again with the government when we distribute our water backpacks like you uh, explained through, um, was developed by David Fisher, who was the CEO there at Greif. You know, we just in the last few days have distributed, uh, we're distributing um, thousands and thousands of water backpacks and we're distributing them to the government schools. So we partner with the government schools. Um, you know, when we transformed the hospital there with MedShare's help in um, Marsabit, Kenya, that was a government hospital because the majority of the services are received 
through the government, whether it's schools, whether it's healthcare. So, no, we we work really well with the government. We respect the government, and uh, so it, it's a partner of ours. Connie, a minute ago, you rattled off a long list of staffers and sites where care or education is provided. Am I correct in saying that the foundation for all those different activities came from the Kenyans as opposed to perhaps you and your assistants telling the Kenyans what they needed? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no question. <laughs> in fact, I used to, um, and, and that's not always traditional because traditionally people you know, would give uh, deference to white people who come into their country. And uh, in the beginning, we used to talk about you know, I'll never trust your yes until you tell me no, because when you first start working there, every idea you have is a yes, and, but it's not really a yes. And so then after I told them that, now they tell me no all the time. They're like, that's a dumb idea. I say, okay. So, you know, and, and that feels, anyway, that I want them, they need to be able to have the, um, the opportunity to be able to say no, you know, these are not good ideas. And so that, you know, they, they have so many better ideas than we do. That's, that's a really staggering thought, this notion that when you go into a developing country, these folks, when they meet potential benefactors, are deferential. How does that dynamic occur? Well, think about it. You know, I always say, you know, we're materially rich. I mean, even people that feel that maybe they're not as advantaged here in on state side, you know, we are still materially rich. And, uh, you know, people there in developing nations are materially poor. And so when you come in and you have resources, then to me that it's not an equal balance because we do come in with resources. I mean, it's like somebody said to me one time, at the end of the day, you're going home. You know, you're not living in that informal settlement. You're not living in that slum. You're not walking those four hours for that water. You know, you're not um, worrying that your child is going to die from malaria because they don't have a simple bed net. You know, at the end of the day, I could go home. I uh, really like the idea of the water backpacks. It seems like such a simple idea uh, that addresses a number of serious problems. And I, I think about you know, uh, hiking in Arizona, we take our camelbacks and without water, we wouldn't be hiking very long. It could be a very serious result, uh, end result. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about how that idea came about and what problems it addresses for those folks in Kenya? Sure. When David Fisher, again, he was the CEO there at Gripe there in Columbus, Ohio, which is, you know, the world's largest packing company. And he went to Haiti, um, with after the serious disaster in Haiti and he saw people carrying jerry cans and you know he knew that Greg had made jerry cans and he knew that they were not for water and he committed at that point that he would come back to the states and figure out how to make a product that women could use safely and could carry uh, and the water backpack holds 20 liters of water just like the jerry can does only the jerry can as um, Jack said previously carried gasoline and, you know, we don't ask our children to drink water out of a gasoline can in the U.S. And so not only is it an easy product to carry, because it is like a camelback. And anybody that's tried both to put the 52 pounds of a jerry can on their head or their back compared to it's the same amount of water, but the water's distributed differently in a soft pack. 
And so it's very much different to be able to carry that. But importantly, it has a liner in it that is solar sanitized once a week. It has a dispenser. Uh, so once uh, once the water's put in there, if it's not safe, we always have water safe at the source, then you fold it three twice and then keep it sealed. So it's a closed system. So the water dispenses safely. If it's not safe at the source, then it's just a water guard, which is just pennies uh, to be able to treat that water, just like you would if you're camping. And then again, you close it and the water is safe. And so the difference between drinking unsafe water and drinking safe water can be the def- the definitions between being able to be healthy and to not being healthy. You know, that reminds me, I'll get a little graphic here. One of the things you showed us at the Roosevelt Cafe was a surgery being conducted on a man who had been, whose body had been invaded by parasites, which I suppose was from bad water. Gonzo, picture of this. We got a video of this surgery and we're seeing this live. Well, not live, it's recorded, but as it's going on. And and this surgeon is removing from this man's lower torso things that look like green beans, except they're white and they're wiggling. And he's filling a large container with these things, which is like a bad movie for us in America, but for many parts of the world, Clean water is such a rare and priceless commodity. We take it for granted here. There's not a sink in America where you can't get a drink of water or a faucet, a faucet, I should say. Connie, how often are you in Kenya? I go to Kenya about five to six times a year. And is it something where you have to stay a little bit or are they quick trips? No, I, well, I usually stay like a week to two weeks. So I still practice here. I'm a, I'm a healthcare consultant. And so I still have a full practice here. So I go back and forth. How often uh, were you able to go over during COVID? I imagine that uh, like many countries, there was the travel restrictions and maybe a complete bar to traveling to Kenya. Yes, during during um, COVID, it was difficult. And uh, again, because I work with healthcare facilities, I was quite busy here. Um, I did travel during COVID, though, not necessarily internationally, but I was out in facilities and into COVID units, and and I helped facilities um, and still help facilities through the COVID crisis here. But as soon as we were able to start traveling internationally, I just got back from Kenya last week, and it's so much easier to travel now (laughs) when we traveled during COVID with, um, you know, we had to have, um, we had to have tests, you know, uh, 72 hours before we went and 72 hours, well, there at the end, we had to have them 24 hours before we came back into the U.S. And so that was quite stressful to make sure that we were still COVID free coming back. But it's a lot different now. I still travel with my mask. I'm a big mask believer and I've not gotten COVID. I'm also a vaccine believer. I have uh, my booster and I have all my vaccines in me I'm, as what they say up to date. So I feel like I can travel now safely to Kenya and return and not not get COVID. I got two questions for you, Connie. The first is you've talked in general about the assistance you're providing the Kenyans. Give us a couple, give us two or three snapshots of specifically what's being accomplished through your organization. Well, I think the mobility cards are huge. You know, we work with um, the man who uh, created um, 
Mobility Worldwide. And there are 22 shops there in the U.S. now that make them. They're made by retired volunteer men and women. Um, and they they ship them all over the world. Kenya has the most carts now. And the gentleman who started that at the time he started, Mel West, was 70 years old. He's 97 now. And he has a vision. He has a um, a belief that God has told him that there'll be a country that everybody has mobility. There'll be nobody crawling on the ground, nobody not being able to go to church or go to school because they don't have a device to be able to help them to do that. And he believes that that's Kenya. And so we're committed to that vision. And uh, so that's one of the projects that we're working really hard on. The water backpack, of course, is the other one. You know, our goal is to get the water backpack in every classroom in the country of Kenya. We believe that when children can grow up drinking safe water, that when they're adults, um, they won't go back to drinking water out of jerry cans. And I've always believed it says 80% of the world's health problems is related to water. And so when you can solve the problem of water, the children will be healthier, they'll be, you know, to grow up healthy. And so that's our commitment now is to put a water backpack in every classroom. You know, these children don't have, like you talked about, Jack, they don't have drinking faucets. So when you hang that pack in the corner of their classroom and they're able to open that dispenser, that's running water to the children that live in these villages and live in these rural areas because they don't have drinking faucets. And uh, so they're assigned to take care of the packs and they do a great job. We've had packs in schools for four or five years and you go back and the kids are still cleaning the pack. They're still taking care of the packs. And so we believe it's a great investment to uh, put water backpacks in all the classrooms in the country of Kenya. So those are two uh, big goals among others that we have, but those are two big goals that we have. Well, that's on the low-tech side of the, of the scale, but I thought I heard you say something about computers. Yes. So we've set up for our partnership. Um, we had actually Dwight Smith there in uh, Columbus, Ohio, is the one that helped us with our computers. And so he sent about 350 computers to Kenya. And through that, we set up 10 computers. We'll set up a computer school. And so the world has moved to technology and many people were left behind because they don't have computers in schools and they don't grow up like our children here with having. Um, I was just talking to a young person the other day and they told me that their school is completely now online. There's no paper. They're paperless. And um, so and I would say in Kenya, it's completely the opposite. They have a pencil and a piece of paper and they don't have computers. So by setting up the computer schools, then people are able to come in. In Kenya, you go through packages and they're able to be trained on the seven packages and that makes them literate then in the, in the technology and they can go on to get jobs then. I can see how safe water is an immediate concern, uh, but it's uh, wonderful that your organization is thinking about the future with the computer skills. From a practical standpoint, you know, the the uh, water backpacks, the mobility carts, even the computers, they have to be built, they have to be shipped. Who pays for the costs of those? We raise the funds to do that. In the mobility worldwide, the carts are given to us because they're made by volunteers. The carts are worth about, about $400 themselves, but there's 200 that fit in a container. And then it cost us about $10,000 to get that container to Kenya. We've taken almost 50 containers down to Kenya now. And um, so 
that, that's how that works. So yeah, we raise the funds for when I said we're raising 700,000, you know, we are always raising funds. Those are the ways that we're able to use those funds and to pay our staff, you know, our staff in Kenya have jobs, you know, um, they're not like a lot of places in the past would support people. These are jobs. They're a real organization in the country of Kenya. They have their, their leaders, their organization. And, um, and so we, they're paid to do their jobs, not enough, <laughs> but considering the jobs that they do, but we do pay them. So that's how money is used is to be able to, um, to send the containers to the country to be able, you know, it's expensive to move about in a developing nation, just like distributing the packs that we did over the several last days, because again, we're taking it to what we call the end user. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to make a product, but you have to get it to that end user and that end user you know, somebody is deep in a village to be able to do that. And so it, that's one of the ways that we spend the funds. It's surprising to me that the bed nets are so important too in Kenya that, um, you know, it keeps um, uh, children from malaria when they're sleeping. Uh, that just the concept or the idea just, um, I don't know, raises uh, just a lot of visions in my mind. How, how bad is malaria there, and, and how well do the bed nets uh, help with that situation? Malaria is very bad. Malaria still is a, is a high killer of children, especially children under five. And so in America, we, we killed the vector, or what we refer to as the mosquito. That's the vector that carries malaria. We, we can't get malaria in the U.S., but in developing nations, what I learned from Centers for Disease Control when I started this work, there's too many mosquitoes out there. It's not possible to kill all of them. So you have to protect the person from the vector, from the mosquito. And so a simple bed net put over there. And we call them bed nets, but some of the children are sleeping on the ground in the manatas that they sleep in. So they're not really bed nets. They're, they're, they cover the child. Um, but we this year have distributed 11,000 bed nets. Um, and so those are distributed to children five and under, pregnant women, and then the physically challenged, and then the elderly will receive uh, the bed nets. Those are the people most vulnerable to succumb to malaria. The idea of mobility carts raises a question. I'm thinking about in the U.S., I don't see, or I, the, because you talk so much about mobility carts, I'm inclined to believe there's a, there's a much greater mobility problem in Kenya than there is in the U.S. So, so I'm wondering if there is something special or some disease that is especially afflicting Kenyans that maybe isn't hitting the U.S., Yes, that's true, Jack, because um, they still have people that have been affected by polio. So again, the U.S. was able to um, eliminate the majority of the case here in the U.S. of polio, but that was not so much so in developing nations. You know, they have now, but there's still a lot of people that are affected by polio. We track all of our carts and all of our recipients, so we do know why people are disabled. There are also a lot of uh, accidents. So some of the younger people have been involved in, in um, accidents on the roadside. It just seems like it's dangerous. And so, you know, so it's a combination of polio. And then sometimes um, if a child is not born attended, and then they'll have a greater chance of having cerebral palsy because there's anoxia at the, during the birth, a lack of 
oxygen to the brain and the child will have cerebral palsy. So, you know, it does seem to me that there are more people who need the mobility carts um, than there would be here. Most of the people here that have disabilities would be more of the older population. Um, and then, of course, Medicare, you know, is, uh, is a great purchaser of adaptive equipment here in the U.S. So you know, most people who need either a walker or a wheelchair or something like that are able to obtain those uh, where that isn't true. Um, say, in a country like Kenya. Jack, I um, read a statistic about uh, charitable giving, and I know that Takani's organization relies in a large part on charitable donations. Americans gave $484 billion to charity in 2021, and that was actually an increase from the, from, uh, the year before. But what struck me of that is the largest source of that money came from individuals, 326 billion dollars from individuals. And um, you couple that with uh, Jeff Bezos, our Amazon <laughs> guy. He said he'd like to give away his $124 billion to charity during his lifetime. And um, I'm sure he's listening to oh, us. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Jeff, um, <laughs> we've got a great organization that we'd like to see you give some money to and a wonderful founder. Uh, Connie, thank you so much for being with us. Again, I'm, I'm humbled and um, I wish you the best of luck. Well, I really appreciate it, John and Jack, and thank you for this opportunity. And we do um, really appreciate in, uh, in our individual donors, and most and our donors are individual people, and you know they believe in the organization, they believe in the work. Many of them have been to Kenya and seen firsthand, and so we've had a lot of our supporters for many, many years. So you're right, without them, there is no Partners for Care. Connie, you really are an army of one and someone to be emulated. Keep at it. Thanks, Tech. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Bye. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just about us, or more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.